Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of 2001, A Space Odyssey, starring Pierre Dullier, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, Daniel Richter, and the voice of Douglas Rain. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, based on a screenplay that he wrote with Arthur C. Clarke, released in 1968 on a budget of $12 million, grossed over $190 million in its many theatrical runs. Kurt, I don't know if there's another film in all of Filmstrip that we've reviewed that has as much ink and audio devoted to it on the internet as 2001 A Space Odyssey. Maybe Star Wars, but I still think this one might beat it. Possibly, because one for one thing, it has you know uh, 10 years on, uh, on Star Wars. And the uh, other thing is, Star Wars, there's, there's stuff to get into, but with 2001... There's like the there's so many different sides. There's the technological side of the movie, which is its whole thing. There's the mystical science fiction aspect, which has been written about so much. And then there's just you know just as a piece of film, uh, you know, like what it did that no other movie had done before, stuff like that. There's there, there's so many ways to talk about this movie. You're right. Yeah, there re- there really are. And what I what I want us to try and do is because what we've done with these. Kubrick films as we've reviewed them is we got into some of the what is he trying to do with this that and the other but mostly we've just kind of reviewed them for what they are and for the time piece that they came out and so I kind of want to try to approach this the same way to see if we can we can do that for what this was in 1968 to people and what uh, Stanley was really trying to say uh, in this movie because this is a real departure from the last really the last two or three films but really that last one if you think about Dr. Strangelove was basically people in a room talking at each other the whole time. This movie is going to be nothing but images and no one talking to anyone. And in fact, the only entity with any emotion in it is the artificial intelligence. I mean, $12 million might not sound like a lot now, but like that was a huge budget for, you know, the science fiction movie. And it's the most, like I think of it as like the most expensive experimental film ever made. And what's, what's awesome about this and Kubrick's entire career is that, you know, he made all these in groundbreaking movies, but he was only allowed to do it because because his movies happened to be successful. So we can we can thank you know Spart like I don't really like Spartacus mm-hmm. that much, but we can thank that movie for being such a hit because that let studios say to him, "You do whatever you want; it makes money." And then right. <laughs> 1968, he, you know, he puts this out. Exactly, yeah. And coming with something that he was fascinated with, he wanted to make what he called just the quintessential science fiction movie. And and we got to, you know, we call a lot of things sci-fi that we've reviewed, but don't confuse like Star Wars and in some ways even like Star Trek or even something like Terminator or with what this is. This is as pure science fiction as you get where you take actual science and you put it a little beyond where it exists at the moment but you're still telling something that seems ultra realistic even if it is fanciful this is not a fantasy adventure 
I love that this movie's poster was like an adventure and exploration. Yeah. I'm like, well, they got the exploration part right, but it's not much of an adventure. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think I love my, one of my favorite like side quotes is Rock Cuts and, you know, allegedly walked out of the premiere going, well, somebody tell me what the hell this is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he, he just didn't get it. And I, I think that is how a lot of people approach this movie. They, they may not get it the first time because if you go in expecting, kind of the same way if you watch Blade Runner expecting a, a, Star Wars action movie or Alien, you know, you're getting the wrong idea from the beginning. That's a that's a science fiction pair of films. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, this movie. I don't know what audiences were expecting when they saw. Uh, I actually haven't seen a trailer for this movie, so I don't know what they were expecting at all. If they were just say they just knew, you know, the guy who made Doctor Strange loves making a space movie, and that's all they knew. I have a hard time wondering what audiences were thinking because. It's like if you're expecting like, you know, an ordinary science fiction movie, you're not going to get it. And if you're just if you're expecting just any kind of ordinary film, you're not going to get it. Because that's one thing George Lucas said when when he saw this movie. He said, "Oh, he, Stanley Kubrick made a visual film." Like mm-hmm. not like of like where the dialogue is almost totally inconsequential. You could press the mute button and you'd probably get the exact same gist of the story. What story there is? Can- can I tell you, because I've seen this movie a number of times, I tested that theory and I watched this with the mute on the whole time. <laughs> and I and I got the same thing out of it. because I And I think Kubrick nailed that. This is the ultimate show-don't-tell movie if there ever was one. Mm. You know, it's all, it, the whole story tells itself in the visuals. The only thing I missed is the score in the beginning with that, you know, just that great classical music and, and where it comes in at different places. I missed that, but not having the dialogue in, like it made no difference in the way I feel about this film or what I got out of it. So I can attest that that actually works. Oh yeah, and there's there's a, there's a couple of movies that have been made where they have an a optional dialogue, well not dialogue, optional audio track that's just the score. And uh, it's too bad they didn't do that for 2001 because this is that this is exactly what that movie needs to be like because it's almost a silent film aside from uh, there's actually several moments where it is a silent like totally silent, not a single sound element. Some of those some of that is actually the most powerful stuff in the movie. Oh. I- Absolutely. There's one scene in particular, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but with the two astronauts and the, the way that that's worked, and it, all you hear is the of the computer's fans running in the background, which yeah. is fantastic. We'll get into that. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that, that Kubrick was so fascinated with this that he started working on it in 64 with Clark, and like they, you know, Clark pitched him a bunch of stories, and he said, I kind of like that one, and I want a little piece of that one, but I want us to, you know, read and write something else. And so together, they worked all of this out. And Arthur C. Clark is an interesting guy because he writes science fiction, but he really writes philosophy is what he writes about. And it's, it's interesting to see him and Kubrick mesh together. I mean, I could think that that was a a good partnership. Oh yeah, like I, you know, uh, it's one of the the kind of uh, it's it's obviously sad that Kubrick, you know, uh, he didn't make it to two thousand one, which is a shame. But like, if there's ever a director that I wish was still alive, just to ask him, even if they don't give me all the answers, just to ask him, like, what were you guys thinking? How was the what was the writing process like on this movie? Um, and yeah, it totally comes across that like Arthur C. Clarke probably gave the movie its mysterious sci fi side and. Kubrick definitely yeah. physically he, he all of his work went into just making the the spaceships and 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 uh, and getting across you know the, the philosophical oh. side. I mean, and you're talking about models that are seven feet long. I mean, it was this is the forerunner of what 
Lucas and his team were able to do in Star Wars. You see so many things here where I'm like, Lucas ripped that off and that too, but I don't blame him because that was kind of awesome. And, you know, it's, it's all of the, just the look of it is what Stanley Kubert was most interested in. I think beyond, you know, t- having characters tell us things, you know, the, we talked about the visual style of Dr. Strangelove. I mean, that huge room with the, the world map on it and all that and the nuclear war and even the plane sequences, the way they were done. I mean, there was a visual style telling that story, but it relied on its characters to lead us through it. And really Peter Sellers and, and George C. Scott to walk us through that movie. I think he almost took it as a challenge to himself. Like, I want to do the same thing, but I want to do it without words. Yeah, Can almost- the visuals just walk us through the story? Oh, yeah. It almost comes across. It makes me wonder if this is a movie Kubrick always wanted to do well before, like before Paths of Glory. Like this is the kind of thing he always wanted to do that he'd never seen before. Because that, that is what comes across totally is that this is a guy who is given, you know, carte blanche to do whatever he wants and what he wants. And, you know, it's a very nerdy kind of thing. He's like, you know, he's always wanted to see. I heard him say he wanted to make the, you know, the, the prototypical good science fiction movie because I guess he mm-hmm. wasn't a fan of the the space movies that have been you know done before because oh he was not a Buck Rogers you know swashbuckler adventure serials kind of guy the way Lucas loved those things I don't yeah. think Kubrick got off on those at all no he thought there could have been it could have been more realistic he thought it could be used mm-hmm. to be you know s- scary and uh, and uh, yeah there are so many things to get into well, but I just keep thinking about this movie historically like how it changed the movies that were made after it how this is this is or, this is really one of those movies that just changed it, how people make movies. It it changed the way movies he didn't like were made. That's <laughs> that the thing about Kubrick you got to know and, and this will be a theme that we'll repeat again and again. He is not pro war. All right, as much as he uses that as subject matter, no one could argue that Paths of Glory is a pro war movie. Right. <laughs> you know, certainly Dr. Strangelove not a pro war movie. And the thing about you know Star Wars, and even before then, like all the Buck Rogers serials and all the Flash Gordon and all that stuff, was those were war stories. And I don't, I think he wanted to tell a science fiction story that wasn't wrapped up in a war, you know. And and that that is a challenge in and of itself because how do you create drama and conflict? And the only way to do that, of course, is is in, internally, which is something he's played with a lot and will be a theme that repeats itself. I mean, I, you know, Nick and I talked about it and you and I sure will talk about it again when we get around to The Shining, but there's a lot of the same stuff that is the, the dramatic tension of this film is the same stuff that's the dramatic tension of The Shining, you know, that he just kind of took away from Stephen King and made his own. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, th- you know, there's so much this. I, I can remember... Oh, gosh. And my dad was a big fan of this film. Um, and and yet he always told me, he said, you don't need to watch this until you, you're kind of old enough to get it. So he really kept me from it until I was, I think I was in college, actually. And we ended up watching it together. And I, I'm so glad that I waited to see it because I don't think I would have appreciated it in my younger self, knowing this kind of stuff I liked and everything. I don't think I would have got it is what I mean. And I watched this in college and I've seen it several times since. And, and, you know, it's usually every couple of three years, I'll go back and just want to revisit it anyway and watch it. Um, but I remember the first time I saw it and the reaction I had to it and just how kind of blown away I was by the fact that I'd sat through something that was almost two and a half hours long and, 
and had maybe, you know, five minutes of actual real dialogue <laughs> through it, but I was blown away and I totally got the story. Like I, I've never had to have anyone explain to me what 2001 is about. I get it. It's actually a pretty simple story. And I'll argue that the simplicity of it is part of its strength is that it doesn't try to tell a very complicated story. It tells one that's as old as any story. You know, the idea of what happens when a, a member of a search party gets paranoid about the other two. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what happens in this movie. You can tell a story of like three, you know, entities set off on a search for the origin of mankind and one of them freaks out to kill the other two. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, how many times have we seen that? And I kind of think that that's neat that that exploration thing, that idea of Lewis Clark and the third one you have never heard of, you know, <laughs> kind of, uh, go awry. Um, and, and, I, and, and the idea of isolation and all these other things, I, I got all of that the first time. So I remember seeing this when I was, you know, I, I think I was 19 or so when I first saw it. And then of course I've seen it many times since. So I, I tell all that because I wanted to tell my background with it. Now I want to ask you first time you saw it, reactions, et cetera. Well, I, I first saw this movie. Well, 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 well the thing is, this is one of these movies where I like I knew of it. I had never seen it. And one thing, well, this is the thing about all pretty much every Kubrick movie. What I knew of it were the endless references uh, to Kubrick films in The Simpsons, because they are clearly massive Kubrick fans. Every other episode, every other episode does have some. Like, like they cram in references to 2001 in episodes that have nothing to do with space stuff like that, or like the Sh or The Shining or Clockwork Orange. Uh, and like the, the the main thing I think of with The Simpsons is the space episode, Deep Space Homer, where once you were in space, it's just nonstop 2001 references with the Homer floating in space with the blue Danube, eating potato chips and so forth. So I knew of the movie and I, I guess we were, I was just in a video store with my dad and I just said, you know, I never actually saw this before. Can we rent that? And he's like, yeah, sure. Because I think he never recommended it to me. He said, I don't know if you'd like it. It's, it's, it is pretty slow. It's, uh, it is unusual, but yeah, sure. And, uh, so yeah, I watched it. Yeah, I was 15 and, uh, I liked it. I did. I, I'd be lying if I said I understood it, but, uh, but I thought, Hey, it looked cool. And it, like, it looked cool enough that my lack of understanding didn't hurt the movie. I was just like, well, whatever that was, uh, <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it is a film that strikes you the first time you see it because it is so stark and it is so antithetical to what you expect. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how to set somebody up who's never seen this to understand what they're about to watch. Yeah. You know, and, and let's talk about it. I mean, from where we've come with, with Kubrick, I mean, we, you know, the killing was kind of a gangster noir movie. Paths of glory was a world war one drama, but it was a drama about, about courtrooms and, you know, what's right and justice. And then Spartacus was a, was a straight up studio for hire. Let's make some money and prove I can do big budget movies thing. Then Lolita was this twisted fantasy about sexual deviancy, which is yeah. going to be something we'd see again. Mm -hmm. And then he had strange love, which is this, it's basically a stage play and a farce about, you know, nuclear war. And now Kubrick makes a big turn with this because everything else he does from here on out, with maybe the exception of Barry Lyndon, is is a movie about something that he is passionate and has direct opinions about. You know, and I mean it changes the way he made films. I think it changed his entire career. And um, you know, I other than the shining, I don't know if there's another piece of his work that he was more obsessed with than this. 
Yeah, that was definitely a thing. Like as we're watching these movies in order, watching this movie, it's just so distinctly. It, it is so different from all of his movies before, which had, uh, even if they had a visual perfection in some aspects, they they were a little bit rougher, maybe. But this is the first. Uh, this is where Kubrick really did change. Where right away in that very first shot, where the you know with the you know just the production credit of you know MGM Productions present, and that we have this. Uh, well, like a sunrise where we, the, the earth is in dead center of the frame while the sun is rising in dead center above the earth. Like this kind of perfectly symmetrical uh, film frame. And like that, like right away he announces, this is what my movies are going to look like from now on. This kind of a certain like vi- a visual symmetry and perfection and like a, a, a sort of cl- a cleanliness uh, to it. Like a, a very mm-hmm. clinical, microscopic, every, everything is like meticulously detail like the first shot we have of inside of a ship with the two astronauts landing on the space station again that shot perfectly symmetrical like there's exactly this much space between the astronaut and the edge of the frame and uh, vice versa on the other side and it's just and like that's its own thing on this movie Mm -hmm. just that that visual symmetry that i don't know if any uh, if there was a movie that looked like that that were like those kind of perfectly framed images before 2001 i haven't seen it yeah i mean it it is definitely a if you're into like filmography and cinematography and a production value and all that stuff, this movie is is the one that you can completely just spend hours cutting through and figuring out. And then if you just want to watch it again for the thematic elements, it's all there. Uh, it's how to use music. I mean, it's a film school in and of itself watching this movie. And and I, you know, I, I'm not spoiling anything by saying we're both going to be pretty favorable toward this, but I do have a lot of questions about it. And I have a lot of things I want to sort of bring up and bounce back with you. But I think before we go any further, Kurt, we do need to give a plot summary. And I'm going to ask you to give a, a little longer one than normal than we usually do so that we don't have to talk about this linearly. Um, because again, I think I've laid out the linear <laughs> path of this movie already, uh, except for the opening that's the Dawn of Mankind, which we can you know, get into in a bit. But give us a good detailed plot summary, and then we can talk about all things 2001. Sure, I can give it a shot here. Uh, we begin millions of years ago before apes evolved into mankind. One group of apes is chased away from their watering hole and risks starving. Then the, these apes discover a large rectangular black monolith that seems to be speaking to them. Then one ape is sitting in a field amongst a pile of scattered bones when suddenly it gets the idea to use a bone as a club. The apes then use this bone to attack the other apes, reclaiming their water hole. We then jump forward a few million years to where man has begun to explore space. Dr. Haywood Floyd is a scientist who's been called to the moon to investigate an object that's been excavated and has been buried for four million years, which turns out to be the monolith. The monolith emits some form of screeching sound at Haywood and the other investigators on the moon as we jump to 18 months later to the Discovery 1 spacecraft on its way to Jupiter. Discovery 1 is being run by a skeleton crew of two astronauts, Dave Bowman and Frank Poole, and the ship's computer, HAL 9000, who the astronauts just call HAL. HAL tells Frank and Dave that a satellite on the ship is about to fail and they should go out into space and replace it. And when they do and they take the parts inside, they find nothing is wrong with it and it's possible that HAL made a mistake, which would render him either useless or dangerous. Frank and Dave discuss what to do about HAL with regard to shutting him down inside a separate spaceship with the radio off, but we see that Hal is reading their lips. Frank heads out into space to put the satellite equipment back where it was. 
when Frank's ship suddenly attacks him and throws Frank into space. Dave goes into another ship to try and rescue Frank, but when he tries to get back into the Discovery One, Hal refuses to let him back inside. And Dave realizes his only option is to re-enter the ship via the emergency airlock without his space helmet that he forgot to grab in his panic to save Frank. But Dave re-enters the ship and proceeds to shut Hal down, and when he does, a pre-recorded message from Dr. Haywood Floyd begins to play explaining the purpose of this entire mission to Jupiter. That the monolith on the moon's screeching sound was sending a signal they detected heading for Jupiter, and that the Discovery One's mission is to find whatever that monolith might have been communicating with. We then arrive at Jupiter, where Dave, in his ship, discovers a monolith, and is then transported through the astral plane to what appears to be a hotel room where Dave begins to rapidly age until he sees the monolith once again, which seems to turn Dave into some form of new life form that suddenly arrives near the Earth and the film ends. Yeah, it turns him into the baby life form, we should say. So very... A lot, lot to unpack there. So um, let's start, though, with the opening, all right? And the, you know, one of the things this movie's noted for, like we've talked about in the intro, is that the lack of dialogue. But the version I watched for this time, and I did watch it twice, once with the mute and once without, opens with just a black screen and two minutes of like, it sounds like an orchestra tuning up and horns blowing. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, I can imagine audiences that were used to, you know, orchestration as part of film. This is no big deal. For me, modern sensibilities, I'm going, what's going on? But I, I recently rewatched Gone with the Wind. And there's all kinds, there's overtures and intermissions and all kinds of things in that, in the version I watched too. And I was like, ah, yes, this is what you did in film before you started. And then that opening shot that you described a bit ago with the, the planet coming into, to view, we come over the dark side of the moon, if you will, and we see Earth and we have the, you know, the big blast of that, that orchestration. It grabs my eyes and ears. And immediately I'm focused dead center. And that's the one thing about this movie that blows me away is how with all the stuff that's going on in it, almost everything wants you to focus dead center in the frame because that's what's important. Yeah. And, and quickly about the, 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 the overture and in the intro, that is something I actually miss from, uh, from all old Hollywood is, uh, is movies doing that? Movies get like you know we, we we've even gone so far as we don't even have opening credits anymore. Movies just start you know bam, it's like Batman Begins opens you know just like quick flash. Here's a quick flash of some bats and bam, here's Bruce running and the movie begins. You don't have a chance to catch your breath. But I love like you know like you know Star Wars in a sense did an overture even though there was text, but that music it gets you in the mood for what the movie is, uh, and that's exactly what 2001 does. Because I think the first time we watched it, I think my dad he just pressed skip. To skip past, well, let's get to the movie. It's like, well, no, that, like Kubrick, that's intentional. He was trying to get an audience in to sit in the dark to hear that sound, and that'll you know just sort of get them in the mood for you know something eerie, something maybe cold, something uh, you know something something not fun maybe. Well, you you said a word there, and I think it's a good word. Cold. This oh, movie yeah. is incredibly cold. I mean, it really is. The performances are all deadly cold and i don't know if that's just the level of actors that we have here or if that's direction i kind of think it's direction 
Um, I haven't seen any of these people in anything else except Kier Dulier and what else I've seen him in. He seems to just be doing this again. Hmm. So I, you know, I've, I've never seen him do much. So I don't know anything about these performers, but just based on what I'm seeing and knowing how Kubrick has a way of directing his actors, I think it's interesting that this time he went away from you know the big leading man. I mean, think about who's been in these films before. I mean, Sterling Hayden is a presence on the screen. Peter Sellers certainly a presence. George C. Scott, Kirk Douglas, right? Like all these people have these presences, and this time he went for like flat, emotionless. I mean, just cold beings. I mean, even think about you know these apes in the beginning. They they screech and they do their ape things, but th- no, there's nothing to relate us to any of them. And I could I, I'm a little bit like Rock Hudson. If I'm watching this, I'm going, what what's going on? <laughs> I mean, I kind of see there's this whole we're going to fight over the watering hole business and all this other stuff. But what what is happening here? And I think it's Kubrick letting us know the characters in this movie are not the humans and not the humanoids. It's not that's not what you're even interested in. It's the stuff. It's the technology and it's space. I think space is the character he's most interested in showing us and just how cold and detached all of it is and all of it can make us. Yeah, uh, about the actors. That that's kind of an unintentional thing about the uh, you know the adds to him the mystique is that truly none of the actors in this movie have I seen in anything else except for Kirdolia in in 2010. And that, if anything, that I think that somehow adds to the movie because you just see these, like, you just think of 2001, like, you know, like if they, let's, for, for instance, let's say one of these guys ended up in Jaws. Well, then you'd see them and you might think of Jaws. But now it's like, it, that adds to it. You see these guys, you only think of them in, in, in this movie. You're not, you're never taken out. Certainly in 1968, no one was, you know, thinking of other movies while they were watching this. No, because they didn't have the method to do that. I mean, that didn't exist at, at the time. Television was just becoming, yeah. you know, this thing that took over people's lives. And so, uh, none of these people strike you, but, but just back to the apes and everything that yeah. they're doing here, we get the drama of the situation. There's one group of apes protecting the watering hole and then the other group can't get nearby. And there's scarcity of food. And you see that like they have to pick what's left over off the bones off of dead animals. And and everything, and then they encounter the monolith, you know. And I, I mean, goodness gracious, I've read and listened to so much about what the monolith is <laughs> and where it is, and I just boil it down to: in this world and in this way of the world that they're creating here, this was the the spark, the trigger, whatever that the alien life forms wanted to use to advance the humanoid life. It's like you know what. We're going to impart knowledge, and since we don't have language at this point, they do it through sound, you know. And I think that whole buzzing and the sound thing—I think that's you, you say you, for some reason the thing picks up a bone to go and realizes I can smash things with it. I think that's the intelligence that the monolith gives this, you know. Well, I've, I've heard again, yeah, I've heard so many, I've heard so many theories on what the monolith is that I, I lose track of which one of them did I come up with and which one of them did I did I hear. But I've heard several of them, and I, I like – that's one thing. I'll bet you Kubrick would say he likes all of them. Because as I was doing the plot summary, I almost put in what I thought the monolith was doing. But it's like that's just, that's essentially a guess. It's like – because you don't 100% know. Oh, that. no. I, I'll admit now what I'm telling you is just my reading of it. So I'd oh, love yeah. to know what you think it is. <laughs> I've heard – the one I like is uh, that the monolith puts in the mankind's mind the first – tool ever the first concept of using a tool using an object to do to do something as opposed to your bare mm-hmm. hands 
one uh, another theory is that it's it's specifically how to use weapons uh and another one is uh this one i like is the idea of uh the monolith puts in the ape's mind the idea of murder of that's how hmm. you get something done you like you know never mind brute force and self-defense and just hitting the guy why don't you just kill him to get what you want well, I, I think it's neat that it intersperses with whatever this cow thing that, like, the bones of it. Like, you see all these different images in the, and presumably in the ape, you know, humanoid's head of, oh, I don't have to wait for one to drop. I can go knock it down myself and yeah. kill it. And then when you see him, like, chewing up meat, you know, in the next couple of scenes, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. I think I like the idea of the tool thing and then the idea of killing. You know, I like more than weapons because all these movies about weapons. Or otherwise, the the rest of it makes doesn't really match the front. Right. But the idea of tools and of I will extinguish your life if it keeps mine or makes mine better. That idea I can get on board with. Oh, for sure. And yeah, the tech, like the tool side, and also just like the idea of <laughs> the very first instance in human history of any kind of technology. Like the most primitive form of technology because that gets us to one of the most iconic edits in the history of film. This idea of he chucks the bone up in the air and as it's spinning in the air and all of a sudden we cut to it becomes – they don't say what it is. I had to like – you watch special features. Mm -hmm. When they say what it is, it actually makes it better, which is that it cuts to – the bone cuts to some kind of – what it's meant to be is an orbital weapons satellite. The idea that this is made Mm -hmm. to drop missiles uh, from orbit onto – Onto the planet. So the idea of we went from a bone as a club to this orbital weapon system. Like the idea of that, like all of mankind is linked to technology or linked to weapons. And you have all of human history boiled down to from a bone to a spaceship five million years. Like the idea of Kubrick saying, <laughs> yeah. and that's the gist of it. Yeah, I mean, really, talk about a smash cut. I mean, we go from the dawn of existence, as Kubrick and Clark would see it, to the distant future. And everything that happened in between, it's all just the same thing repeating. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. I mean, but that's also, there's some like sort of cheeky nihilism in that. Is <laughs> that none of that other stuff that don't even matter? Yeah. You know, forget all of that. Forget Spartacus, forget World War One. Forget, you know, the 50s, forget all of that, you know, forget nuclear war, you know, because in this we're going to learn we work with the Russians, but there's still like an uneasiness to it, which I'm sure in 1968 played exactly the way it's supposed to. But I, that's fascinating to me because I've ne- I never knew that was supposed to be like a weapon system. I just thought it was just another piece of space hardware. Yeah. Like, and here's a tool and, and here's our new tool. You know, but the fact that it is something that could drop ordinates or whatever, yeah, it totally makes sense. I get it. It's this is our new. We went from that tool to this tool, and guess what? All tools have the same purpose. It's to keep us alive and make you not alive. You know, I guess that's kind of what happens in the first twenty five minutes of the movie. It is, and and the weapon idea makes that works. But I also think the idea of just the technology works. The idea of a you know a club led to the wheel, which led to you know the. You know, which led to a boat, which led to, you know... Well, we didn't get fire. I mean, we we had to get fire in there. You know, language, everything came from that club. And I'm like, why? And then I'm like, hmm, shouldn't the monolith just be a club? You know, later on in the movie, but it's still, it's, you know, monolith itself. And that also adds to the mystique is the the idea of, you know, like all this stuff originates from this monolith. And we're also like... This is like right away, like from the yeah. very first instance of the monolith, the mystery 
side of this movie gets in where it's like, well, why would it do mm-hmm. that? Like, what, what, what purpose did it serve to like, why, well, why does it want to give uh, apes the, the, you know, the, the knowledge of killing and, and tools and stuff? And that's part of another theory, which is the jump cut, which is, you know, there's the analogy of, you know, technology and all mankind. But another thing is just from a story point of view, the idea of that each of the acts of the film are the various encounters of the monolith. The idea of <laughs> mm-hmm. the first encounter was five million years ago. And it, as it turns out, they didn't find another one for another five million years, which is on the moon. And then it's we found another one in two years, and then then the, and then the movie's over. Well, it's it's kind of like the idea of uh, if there are higher beings that created life on Earth, that they sort of set like markers for oh, yeah. Earthlings. Like, okay, so you've gotten that, so now you advance, and okay, you found that, great. So they figure out, and what we figure out through the the length of the movie with the two Floyd series is the last time we see him, him and everybody else are like being deafened by the you know siren screaming from the monolith, but he tells them later that we figured out that was a signal beaming towards Jupiter, so we sent you out there to figure out what it was. And that's the next step is that, okay, so we figured out what it was, and then they send reborn you know, astronaut, uh, Frank, uh, or Dave back to us, you know, and then that's where 2010 picks up. If you've ever seen that, but I mean, it's like the monolith is the guidepost along the way. It's like, okay, when you, it's it, like old video games, when you reach this one, well, the, the princess yeah. is not in this castle, but go to the next uh-huh. one, you know? <laughs> and so, and that, and they get faster and faster as we advance. And the idea that once we get smart enough to meet them where they are, then they can you know set us a little bit further on our journey. Which you know, science fiction and and particularly science fiction horror has always played that as to there would be a point when humanity got to that guidepost and the aliens would realize, okay, now we got to kill them all. Yeah. You know, which I mean, that's you know dozens and hundreds of films about that. This one doesn't really play it that way. I don't think the aliens have harsh intentions for their creation if you want to look at it like that yeah it's weird also yeah we're getting into a thing with this movie and the aliens it's something there's something when we're talking about an existence that potentially has been alive for millions of years something about that is just inherently like just creepy and scary to me since chills down my spine the idea of we'll put a monolith on on earth and then uh However long it takes them to get to the one on the moon, they'll find the next one. So it takes them like, you know, it takes them 100 years, takes them 5 million years, doesn't matter to us as long as like, we just want them, we want these people to get to us somehow. If it takes 5 million years, so be it. But the idea of they're willing to, whatever they are, they're okay waiting 5 million years. And then again, again, like the the intention of these Mm -hmm. aliens, it's apparently, it doesn't come off as hostile, but what, but Whatever it is, it, again, it's like, it, do they, are they, is it about communication? Is it about, uh, is it about them working together? Whatever it is, again, well, this is one of these things, like, whatever it is, Kubrick, he was unspecific as to how. Well, let, let me lay a little bit of, you know, growing up Southern Christian on this a little bit here, too, is if you believe in benevolent creators, yeah. you know, or a benevolent creator, um, then it wouldn't want to turn on you once you reached higher levels of being, you know, that it, it would almost set it up to where it wanted you to do that so that then you could be closer to it. You know, the idea of, uh, you know, the idea of, particularly in Christianity is that you live your life a certain way so that when you die, you can go and live another life in a better realm. That's a higher plane of being and be closer to the creator, et cetera. And I think that's what Kubrick and Clark are playing with here is rather than that, you know, you get to, um, 
this higher level of being or whatever, rather than it being a violent end for you, that it transports you into a new level of existence so that you can be closer to your creator. What the interesting and again, the nihilistic subtext of all of it is that imagine all the killing you have to do to get there, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's what happens, you know, is that there's enormous amounts of death and enormous amounts of emotional death that I think have to happen for these humans to get where they are. I mean, think about Floyd when he's flying to the moon base and all that. And he has that, I mean, he has a Skype call with his daughter, which is, I think, Stanley Kubrick's daughter in real life. And, and I'm going, I'm like, well, that, you know, Kurt and I are doing that right now. We could turn the camera yeah. on and have the same experience. But like how distant he is, like, oh, no, I can't make your birthday party. I'm sorry. I'm so far away. And I'm like, ouch, man. You know, <laughs> but also her response is not the response of a typical six-year-old. Like, well, okay, that's all right. My six-year-old niece would have lost her mind, you know, if somebody had done that to her, you know, a few years ago. So I'm like, well, there's a coldness that permeates through everything in this movie. That's why I keep coming back to like, this is a cold movie, and that's not a bad thing. It's the thematic element all this is built around, because again, I don't think Kubrick and Clark care about the people here. They want you to look at the stuff and the journey. Oh, yeah. If there was ever a movie where, you know, it's about the journey, not the destination, it is definitely this. Because if, you know, depending on who he asked, the destination of this movie is very much like, what the hell was that? But the journey of everything about uh, was, was, was mesmerizing. Um, and that takes us, you know, we're, we're into, we're into the second act here where the movie, mm-hmm. you know, just a quick about the first act. The thing about that first act is every time I watch the movie and we're with the apes, there's a split second where I go, oh, yeah, almost like I forgot about this part. Because by the time you're in the end of this movie, yeah, you're so dazzled by what has happened. It's very easy to forget about that first 15 minutes, which in and of itself is a great piece of filmmaking where he gets this – he creates this little short film about the, you know, the evolution of mankind without a single mm-hmm. word of dialogue. And yet, yeah. more, or less, and yet more or less you understand what's going on. Like that's, that's tough to do. It's all about the edit. And what he sees, like just the quick flash of while he's with the bone, we get a quick flash of the what he was looking at when he was looking at the monolith. Mm-hmm. To say he's think, so we so we know he's thinking of what the monolith was telling him, stuff like that. But then, bam, we, we're in the. Uh, then we get to that second act where it, it was weird. I was you know when I was thinking of this movie, it's like the, you could probably boil down the entire script to a couple pages, and yet <laughs> the movie is two and a half hours long. Like the line, right. the ship docks in the space station. That's ten minutes. Of us floating yeah. through space with, and w- where we get that f- the first spaceship shot with the blue Danube, and like that, that's there's yeah, you get all the all the zero gravity, and then also like all the like faux product placement that's in this. Yeah. You know, you got Xerox and Kodak, and you got Pan Am, and <laughs> you know, and that Pan Am doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that I mean, I knew of Pan Am because I'd seen the airplane movies, and I knew that that <laughs> was a riff on those. You know, so I'm like, oh, and you know, again, they rip off a ton of this. <laughs> so, in both of the the airplane movies, which are by the way are comedy genius, I just want to put them yeah. out there. We'll never review them on here, but go watch those people. <laughs> it's everything you think is funny now, they did it 30 years ago. But anyway. <laughs> Um, the idea that this movie is telling us this story and doing it all through the visuals, it's letting the visuals tell us the story is what's so bold about it. I think it, because I'm, I'm sure nowadays studio execs would be like, man, you got to have some narration in here. We got to bring Morgan Freeman in. We got to have somebody telling mm-hmm. us what in the heck's going on because people are not going to follow this. But this movie 
insists on the fact of like, no, I'm not going to do that. This is just, you're just going to watch 10 minutes of this woman walking upside down and delivering a (laughs) food tray. And then even when we get dialogue, it's like trite. It's just like, tell me about your day at the office. You know, I mean, Haywood. And I mean, like they don't talk about anything. The only thing that's interesting is when he's sitting outside of the, I don't know if it's the Hilton or one of the, you know, faux hotel places on the the moon base or whatever. And he's sitting with those Russian scientists and that one guy's probing him about like, what's going on on this, you know, this uh, place where you're going. And you finally realize that Floyd can't tell him anything. You know, he's like, well, I really can't tell you about that. And it's like, oh, you know, so there's something bigger, and it says it decided that it's sinister, and he even has that whole boardroom explanation of like we did that because we figured that would keep everyone away and would make everyone scared if you, they thought there was an outbreak up here. And I'm like, yep, that's the total government answer to something like this. I get it. I remember the first time I watched it, where I was like waiting, for, like it's like it's 25 minutes until someone opens their mouth in this movie, and the first time I saw it, it's like finally someone's going to start talking. We're going to get some kind of like you know story going or an explanation of what the hell was the model of, and yeah, the dialogue is very. It's almost like you just turned a mic on in the middle of like some like random board meeting. It's just like the dialogue is so nonspecific. It's not one thing about it is like it's so casual. It's like we just we were just f- five million years ago with apes and this yeah. alien black monolith, and now we have these guys just chit chatting, walking past the Howard Johnsons in the space station, as if it, it as if it's the most normal thing in the world. Like it's a science yeah. fiction movie where they're not dazzled or mesmerized or excited about this, you know, science fiction like Star Wars. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like Star Wars has you know, uh, if someone's swinging by in a spaceship, like they're screaming, you know, wahoo as they're doing it. And this, you know, like Floyd's asleep on, on this uh, first yeah. epic uh, <laughs> space flight we're seeing in movies. Because you get the sense that not only is it not the first time this has happened, it's not even his first time. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> you know, way. that it's become so routine to life that it's like, eh, no big deal. And I mean, that's an interesting jumping off point for like, it's time for humanity to to buzz up a little bit. You know, because the thing we know about the apes in the beginning was they would have loved to have been around the watering hole, but they weren't exactly like dying off. You know, like there were there was a family unit there. They were kind of, you know, they were hanging around, hiding from, you know, predators at night. Like they had evolved enough to figure out like we, we can live, you know. And then they get to the next level. And this is almost the same thing playing out again here at the end of the first act is that uh, humanity's gotten to a point where what should seem magical to them is just so routine that, okay, it's time to bump that up just a little bit, you know? And so again, if you believe in the, the idea of the benevolent creators here, it's like, okay, it's time to, to bring them up. And you, you said something earlier. I want to go back to for a sec though. And, and you're the only other person I've ever heard say this. Most people I talk to about this movie think it's the same monolith over and over. And you said monoliths. And I agree with you. If if you're intending that these are different pieces that do the same thing, I've always thought this was different monoliths put along as guideposts. Yeah. I I mean, I think the first time I watched it, I thought it was the same one. Um, and then it was watching the special features. And then I think in 2010, there is some, I think there's some kind of an image where there are, you know, thousands of monoliths or whatever. I think, I think that's right. I've only seen 2010, like maybe once or twice. It's been a long time since I remembered that. But I had the first, the first impression, of course, was it the same one. But subsequent rewatchings, I've come to think of it that no, they're just different ones that all do the same thing. Yeah. Like I think, yeah, the idea is, you know, that the aliens or whatever, they planted these maybe. Throughout the galaxy, like maybe they're not just four for humans. Maybe there's, you know, there's, 
there's a there's a couple a few light years away for the you know the raccoon creatures from Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. There's <laughs> next thing that. you're going to tell me there's one that leads me to my daughter's bedroom where I can signal dust sure. signals to her to <laughs> like you know get me get me out of trouble there. But, yeah. Talk about a guy that ripped this movie off, but anyway. Yeah, so. that's, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, mean, I, I think that's neat, though, that we're – the end of the first act is the we, we discovered this thing. It was buried there millions of years ago, and nobody knows what it does. We don't know anything about it. And I love the fact that what activates it is that they start doing the thing that humans do. And this is funny that in 1968, Kubrick realized, yeah, somebody's going to stop and take a selfie. Exactly. You know, and that's they start to do that, and then the buzz creates like, hey, idiots, there's something more going on here than taking a picture by me. <laughs> Yeah, uh yeah, again, again like the <laughs> this idea that humans are, you know, they're like even though it's in the future they they're still just as vainglorious. It's like, you know, they can't just take a picture of yeah. the thing. They got they need to show that, you know, I'm in front of this thing, you know, it's just it's, it's us eight. Uh and it, which goes back to the casual nature. Like they like they're not even that jazzed about finding this potentially alien thing, which is Mm-mm. maybe maybe the one unrealistic thing just slightly is that I'd be a little excited if I saw this thing cuz clearly this is an alien thing and they're just like well I don't know what it is but you know let's take a picture of it like they're more interested <laughs> they're talking about mm-hmm. the alien well if they're saying they're more interested in in the sandwiches like uh, what do you got some kind of chicken <laughs> uh- <laughs> yeah Again, because this has become so routine, that's why I think this isn't the first alien artifact these people have found, been around, known about, and they're like, eh, okay, it's just another one. You know, it'd be like if Indiana Jones, you know, walked up to the Raiders uh, to the Lost Ark and sort of shrugged and went, meh, you know, I mean, like, you know, because I, I did that whole Temple of Doom thing. Somebody tried to rip my heart out three years ago, if you believe mm-hmm. the timeline of the indie movie. Right. I mean, you know, so <laughs> why wouldn't he have that reaction? But I kind of like that, though, because Kubrick has has nailed what is not entirely accurate, but is also the you know trope millennial reaction to everything. Oh, yeah. Is like, eh, <laughs> you know, and he did it, you know, seventy years before it really, or sixty years before it was a thing, um, which is funny uh, to think about. I mean, there's humor in that, and and th- I think that's the thing is that because this movie is cold and stark, and there's no dialogue or anything, don't think that there's not funny. In this, there's a lot of humor in this movie, just at the way these people don't react to what's happening to them, and then the way that they do react to it. And I think that's a good jumping off point for the second act here, where we get our what I'll call our three main characters: Dave, Frank, and Hal. Yeah. You know, because these are the people we're going to spend the bulk of this film with. Yeah, it is interesting. All of a sudden, every time I watch this movie, you know, it does seem like Act Three. All of like, what is it? Like an hour into the movie, all of a sudden we get something with a plot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, we we go through all of this so that now we get the people to start talking, you know. And but what we find again is that Frank and Dave are just as dull as everybody else that's already talked. Yeah. They don't have anything to say. It's all in what they don't say. And and the the thing that's that's neat here is that. Kubrick and Clark decided, let's put all the paranoia and emotion and, you know, everything that is a human reaction to stress situations in the artificial intelligence and not in the people, you know, because everything that Frank and Dave do, including having a discussion about how behind his back where they can't where they think, you know, he can't hear them or figure out what they're saying about him is all a natural, logical progression. Like, it makes total sense. Like, he sent us out here on a goose chase to do a really dangerous thing that's not wrong. So one of two things is happening. Either he's malfunctioning, which means he's not any good to us anymore, or he could kill us. 
You know, like th- that's actual good logic by the astronauts. How's the one sitting over there going like, they're talking about me. Are they still <laughs> talking about me? He's like a mean girl. Or something. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome that it's all put in this dang computer, you know? <laughs> and I mean, you talk about, I mean, that that is certainly a Cold War and definitely a 60s thing is that technology is going to get so much smarter than us that it's going to kill us. And I mean, holy cow, how many franchises are built on that idea? Oh, yeah. It's like Hal, just a thing about HAL 9000. Like, you know, Kubrick's had some iconic characters in his movies uh, before. But, man, you want to talk about like an iconic film character. I mean, HAL 9000, he might be the most iconic character Kubrick ever. Well, I mean, uh, it, on the Amazon look of it, all it is is that friggin' red eye. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, that's all you need. And you're like, I know what that is. And everyone knows what that is, even if they haven't seen this movie. You know what that is. That red dot blinking at you. You know that that's the code for a supercomputer that's gone awry. Or has it gone awry? Or has it just gone human? That's the other question. Yeah, again, part of the mystery, like, like as if the monolith and stuff wasn't mysterious enough, we don't get a concrete explanation as to what exactly is going on with Hal. Because he is a great character. Because again, he is like he's the paranoid guy in the crew. I always like the idea that you know his voice is great, very calm because that's the voice that he was programmed to have. But I like to think right. if he had a human voice, like if he could act like a person, he'd be this sweaty, nervous, Peter Laurie type screaming, paranoid, <laughs> scratching himself, sweaty all the time, you know, rubbing his face about the mission. Uh, because that, and again, it's not clear is the robot, as he literally glitched? Is he like, is it a virus? Is he gone insane? Or is it a computer realizing it's smarter than humans and tries to assert control? And because it, it reminds me, of, I was thinking when I was watching it last time, I was thinking about this line Chris Rock has about the tiger <laughs> that attacked Siegfried and Roy. And people blaming the tiger, saying the tiger went crazy. So no, that tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. And I yeah. like to think that's maybe that's what Hal 9000 is. Is Hal 9000 is the supercomputer? Either he has gone crazy, or he's he's gone fully robotic and computer and realized he is smarter than the humans. And he realizes, well, I can like almost like he's the Terminator. The Terminator's programmed mm-hmm. kill Sarah Connor whatever it costs. If you lose your legs, just crawl for it, whatever. So the idea of Hal 9000 is programmed get this ship to Jupiter as efficiently as possible and suddenly realizes, well, if anything's slowing me down, it's these humans. Uh, and so it's like, well, th- that's clearly going to, you know, I-, I can get to Jupiter a lot faster than, than, than these humans. That's one angle. Well, I mean, yeah, that's definitely one angle. I, I'll tell you, uh, in later life, kind of the character I think Hal is, is a model for, and that's Howard Bill from Network. I think he's he's mad as hell and isn't going to take this anymore <laughs> and then decides to do away with the things that are in his way because much like Mother in Ridley Scott's Alien yeah. and you know just in that first movie not in all the mythology that's happened since and everything but just in that first movie all you know is that that computer is sending them to their death for a reason that they don't even know yeah. and then it may not even know you know, and what you learn about this thing is that Floyd sent them out there with that to get to Jupiter to figure out what that signal was doing. And what we didn't talk about, there's three people in stasis in this thing, too, right. that Hal kills because he's like, well, we don't need these anymore. Because you know what? We didn't need them in the movie, so we don't even wake them up. We just <laughs> kill them and, you know, they don't even know. So I, I, I think it's great that... It, you talk about iconic characters. I do think this is Kubrick's most iconic character. 
that he creates. He, he's got every range of emotion that you can have, even when he's, quote, dying, when Dave's disabling him and stuff. Like, he's like, is this going to hurt, Dave? Am I going to yeah. know? And he starts singing like a lullaby to himself. And I'm like, man, shut, unplug this thing as fast as you can, Dave. Holy cow. I would be freaked out by this thing, too. And it's, it, it is all in the way Douglas Rain plays it, just that calm, but yet, even though the tenor never changes in his voice, you feel the emotions that Hal's feeling at different times. Oh, yeah. It's like if you want to talk about like a moment where you realize Dave is I mean, that the Hal is the most emotional character, it's that he really is like he wants to read their lips to see what they're saying about him. He's he is absolutely he's that paranoid that that's what he's going to do. And I'll never forget that because when I was watching this movie the first time and they it was I thought it was pretty smart on the part of the astronauts. Like, let's turn the radio off. That way he can't hear us. And there's no way. <laughs> they were just, these genius astronauts forgot that there's a window and that I guess every one of these HAL monitors across the spaceship has a camera. And when we cut to the, the just showing the mouth and the, and the camera going from left to right, and left to right, I, that was like, that is one of the greatest moments in, in, in movie history for me. Because I'll never forget. I was just like, I, I, I gasped. Because yeah. I was thinking, I wonder, because I probably was thinking, I wonder if he's doing that. It's like, and then they show, no, he is doing that. And yeah, it's again, it's the show don't tell. It's we're not going to tell you how's reading their lips. We're going to tell you that through the visual cue. And what a great like revelation to the audience. Like, what is, what, what are we cutting back for? Oh, he's reading their lips. And I'll tell you this. I think they hid in there. They knew there were cameras. I don't think they knew how could read lips. I think they knew they could hear him. Or they, he could hear them no matter how low they whispered. I don't think they knew he could do that. And, and that's why it's, it's their undoing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's again, another thing of, of, of science fiction of, you know, robots, whether it's the matrix of robots eventually conquering mankind. Is humanity thinking because they designed it that they're smarter than it? And the, mm -hmm. and the idea of that, you know, mankind accidentally invents something that is actually smarter and more clever than it. And again, that's, you know, that's, that's every science fiction movie. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But again, to see that the way that plays out here is so different than the way it plays out on all those other things, all those derivations of it. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with things taking from other things. I mean, I've used the word that they stole this, that, and the other. And I think that's fine. I think art does that all the time. That's, that's fine. That's, you get a good idea and you go with it. You know, sure. You take it to the next place or in a different place. But this is the, the one that I think it plays it all off as again, Hal is making the non-logical decisions while the two humans are making the logical decisions. That's an interesting reversal of role, you know, for what usually happens in these movies. I mean, the way AI that kills you all is, is played off in like Cameron films in particular is that, well, it just makes sense that it would sense you as its biggest danger. So when you figure out what your chief predator is, what do you do? You either isolate yourself from it or you destroy it. You know, that's not what Hal's doing here. All Hal's doing is just trying to get to Jupiter. Yeah. And what he realizes is that these two guys are going to unplug me. <laughs> and that is not what I want. You know, and I want to get to Jupiter. And that's what's interesting here is, and it, I, again, I haven't seen 2010 in a long time, so I want to go back and look at it again is because I know Hal comes back in that or whatever. I, I don't... Uh, it's neat that Hal's the one that's really on the mission. Dave disables him, and then Dave is the one that goes and meets the the alien life forms and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, and I kind of never thought of that until just now, is that they assume Hal is incorrect. But Hal is saying, no, it, that machine I sent you to fix, it is going to fail. 
And they're saying, right. well, I don't see any problem with it. So they're kind of jumping the, it could be they are jumping the gun and they're wrong. Uh, and it's like, and Hal's just like, well, what do you mean? Like, so they're going to shut me down even though I'm wrong. And so that, look, when he's reading the lips, he wasn't malicious before then, but when he sees that they're going to kill me, then all of a sudden he does, he goes from, you know, I'm just trying to help out to being then, well, then you guys, <laughs> then I'm going to take you guys out then if, you, if that's the way it's going to go. Well, well, let's talk about that because I mean they radio back and forth with with Earth and Earth says we've run the same simulations and it's not you know, there's not going to be a problem with this satellite you know and our Hal's telling us everything's fine and so there that's when they come to the decision of like yep we're gonna have to take him out you know and my question to you is 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 this justifiable homicide by Hal to kill Frank <laughs> like this because he knows what's happening and to try to kill Dave? Well, uh, if. <laughs> Because I think it's clear that when by the time Frank gets back from repairing the ship, Hal realizes if I don't do this now, this is my one shot. Uh, mm-hmm. And Hal and Hal doesn't want to, you know. Hal's like, you know, he, he doesn't want to die, so he's like, so I'm going to defend myself. And that, that was also that, that's another thing. I've seen this movie a couple times, but for some reason, it never hit me until now. Like it's a, just a blatant thing is that bit where Frank's in space repairing the thing, and then ha- the Frank's pod turns around. And starts mm-hmm. moving towards him. I don't know why, but I'd never noticed that before. Is that Hal is taking control of the pod and is literally, we don't see it, but it seems to be he takes the pod, launches it towards him or has the arms grab him and just chuck him into space, which is that, that also gets into a thing with Hal. Is that maybe like he's, you know, he is an efficient machine, but even that's like, that's a little. That's a, that's pretty evil. Like he could have just, you know, taken his helmet off and it and been done like that. But it's like, no, I'm going to chuck him into space so that he's going to die in agony and, and, and screaming and panicking. Uh, like, oh, I, I have a different read on that. I think he does that because I think he anticipates Dave's going to try to go help him. And then that's how I can get rid of Dave too. That's true. You know, cause it, because they split up, you know, like they make the decision, like you go back out and put the satellite back up. I'll start working on disabling Hal. And Hal's like, okay, well, I, how can I get these guys, you know, both in a compromised position since they've split up? Um, okay, well, I'll jam Frank out into space, and I know Dave will try to go for him, and then I'll lock Dave out because that's what he does. And I'm like, well, that's a great plan, Hal. That's actually really smart. Yeah, it's, it's, know, it's, he sort of thought through it. it, it and it's a very, it's a very cool thing of a robot ch- trying to figure out what would a human do because humans are dumb. It's like they're going to defy logic. Right. Like, this guy's my friend. I'm going to go protect him. And he's also thinking, I don't know if Hal was exactly thinking this, but he was, you know, it turns out he was right. It's like, this guy is so human and reacts so, inst- you know, with, with instinct, no matter how smart of an astronaut he is, that there's a good chance he's going to forget his helmet, which is, mm-hmm. I've seen people make mistakes in sci-fi movies where I'm like, come on, that, that, that's baloney. But the idea of there's so little time and probably Dave is freaking out, I, I buy him forgetting that his helmet's there, but it is a pretty nice moment when I didn't notice it until when, when Dave comes back and he says, well, I'm going to go through the airlock and Hal says without your helmet. And Dave kind of, I think Dave realizes he doesn't have his helmet. He's kind of like, it's, it is a bit where he just stops talking. He's just like, he's like, he's thinking to himself, you idiot, you forgot the helmet. Mm-hmm. You're an astronaut. Well, it's, it's almost that Muldoon moment in, in Jurassic park when he realizes that, Oh, I fell for the, Velociraptor trick, clever girl. Yeah, and he yeah. gets his face eaten off. I mean, really, it's the same kind of thing. And I'm like, hmm, that's a, yeah, that's. I mean, you see it on his face, and credit Garrett Dulier for playing it because again, he's played most of this really cold and flat, and I think that's what he was supposed to do. But that realization on his face, like, oh man, I left my helmet. What? A, oh, oh, that's this is gonna hurt. 
you know, but he realizes what he's got to do, but he still knows something that either Hal misjudges or doesn't realize is that he can actually still reenter the ship. It's going to be dangerous, but he can still get through that emergency airlock. And I, I wanted to ask you, I'm like, is that the movie telling us that Hal does have flawed logic? Hal is misfiring because how could he have not known that or figured that out? I think that's how with this, you know, using he's trying to use human logic. He's thinking that he'll he'll be too he'll he'll be stupid enough to forget his helmet. And he's also thinking <laughs> he's thinking no human being would be stupid enough to try this. No, because he's like robots can't calculate bravery or something. It's like there's no way an astronaut is going to try to do that because That's the chances yeah. of dying are so great. He like he would never have thought of that because. But that that chunk, this chunk of the movie, with uh, from the moment he realizes he forgot his helmet to, like it's like five or ten minutes now, where he, where we're given five and ten, five to ten minutes to think about it, where it's like, is this guy gonna leap into the vacuum of space without his helmet? Uh, and the move, and all of a sudden, like it's so quiet, and really, you're just again, you're just given all this time to think about it because that is such a terrifying concept because we don't know because mm -hmm. we honestly we still don't know what exactly is going to happen if someone did that like well i mean yeah we do we've seen guardians of the galaxy and well, star wars <laughs> the last jedi so we know what's going to happen but sure. no you're right we we don't we don't and and again to a 1960s audience we have to think about when this was i mean space exploration and all that was as foreign to them as anything you know that you could possibly put in their heads so no one in the audience had any frame of reference for what was going to happen. So that's why Kubrick and Clark are able to get away with what they do here is that, well, nobody's going to be able to contradict this. That's know? right. So what, what are we going to, you know, what are they going to say? Oh, that couldn't possibly happen. Well, how do you know? You know, and, and that's, that's the fun part of it actually is that it, uh, you, we don't, we don't know. Oh yeah. And this, and this entire sequence, I would argue, even counting the stuff in the shining, I would say this sequence is the scariest thing, scariest scene in a Kubrick movie. Like all of a sudden, I would argue this movie has like, you know, a small frat. If this were a pie graph, there's a small fraction of this movie you could just call horror just because it's that creepy. And this scene is, uh, again, it's just, it's so scary. Right. And also all of a sudden it, it changes the pace a little bit. Because we mm -hmm. realize that he's going to – literally, there's a time clock. He's going to run out of oxygen in there. He doesn't have any food. There is literally mm -hmm. only one option, and it's just a matter of getting it over with. And the bit where he, he positions himself, it is interesting. All of a sudden, you know, the movie's very, very clinical and very precise. And yet we get this weird – it's like something out of gravity, like out of some kind of adventure space movie. Like it turns into an action movie for you know two minutes where it's like – it's not perfect, but he positions himself in front of the airlock – and that bit where he starts pressing the buttons and releasing the levers to like eject, where this super quiet movie for the first and only time, all of a sudden there's all these flashing lights and super loud sirens as he's about to eject. It is so loud uh, and it is so frightening. And the way he, he's got a look on his face, Kier Dulia, uh, underrated performance in my opinion, the, the fear on his face. It's like, yeah, I'm an astronaut and yeah, this is possible. But man, it's like if I accidentally let out a breath or or whatever, it's like I could die instantly. It's like it is, it it is so terrifying. And well, on the on the, on the special features, they point out how I didn't think of it like like uh, like this, but the idea of the contradiction of all these flashing, you know, uh, these these sirens and so forth, and then 
we cut to dead silence as we get to the most, you know, the fast-paced bit of the, of the of the movie where he's suddenly bouncing around the airlock and it's still terrifying. Because again, you we still don't know like what would you, I've heard some people say, well what you should do is you breathe out as you're in space as opposed to holding your breath. But again, it's again mm. it's again it's all theory, but it went, that 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 to 8 seconds where he's just bouncing around and it hits the lever and he still has to hold his breath to, you know, for the room to depressurize. That entire section is just it's uh, it's my favorite uh, section of the movie. Well, I, I agree with you. I think it, it is a horror movie for those few minutes. I yeah. think that's exactly what it's trying to be, and I'm glad you said that. I I think it, it's the it's the ticking clock in the movie that this movie hasn't had, right? You know, because I mean, there's been nothing that has hurried it along at any point. Right. I mean, this movie's not been in a hurry to do anything. And now all of a sudden it is. And that's a real jolt to the audience because if you've been going with this and you've kind of hung in there with it this long, I don't think you would expect that this movie all of a sudden is now going to be in a hurry. Right. You know, that it's going to do this. I'm like, wow, that, yeah, that is a real jolt to your sensibilities and that, that we now put this ticking clock on Dave as he's trying to get back in the airlock. And ultimately he does, right. And he survives. And then we go through the moments of, of Dave shutting Hal down. And the fact that it's not as simple as pull the plug, he's got to unscrew this. He's got to do this. He's got to take this blade out. He's got to do it. And I kind of like that because that's a, that's something that, you know, again, they had no frame of reference for knowing this or whatever, but computers in Kubrick's day were as simple as you unplug them and then they stopped working. But if this thing is as advanced as they say it is, it would be like things we have today where it's, it's not as simple as unplugging Google. You know, if you want it to go away like that, it would take a lot to do that. And I like the fact that it's going to take him quite a bit and that he's going to have to listen to Hal essentially plead with him, don't do this. And that he's going to go through with it anyway. Again, it shows the coldness that humanity has arrived at. Oh, yeah. Like, it brings me back to me thinking, you know, if Hal could speak, he'd sound like Peter Lorre, especially here. Like, he he's so – it's – it, there's something sad about it is that he is begging for it's a computer begging for his life even though even though he's not sounding emotional what he's saying you can feel it like a computer saying he's afraid that is something about yeah. that is just it, it is disturbing um and yet, yeah i mean think about that line like i'm afraid dave you know yeah. what what are you doing you know and all all the things he's laying on him and i'm like man that's got to mess with dave <laughs> oh yeah you can see it on his face he's like he's <laughs> You know, he's like he's probably thinking, "Please stop talking. You're making it way harder." Like, and when 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 all of a sudden Hal is another part of the sadness is that the supercomputer, the super probably maybe the most intelligent thing in the galaxy, let's say at this point, because you know, and Hal is reducing its intelligence and it's getting you know less intelligent and dumber and it's devolving to the point where it wants where it where it starts it it introduces itself as though it's booting up for the first time, as though it's like being born Mm -hmm. and going back in time. Uh, well, de-aging. and that's foreshadowing, which is what's about to happen today. I, and I, you know, I mean, that's I, I just thought yeah. of that just now is that he does the exact same. The aliens do the same thing to him that you know that uh, that, that he, he does. does to Hal. I mean, and I and I don't think that's like uh, you know happenstance or coincidence either. I think the aliens are like, let's turn him back around because I mean, look, the crux of this movie is go out there and see what it is, and when you get there, the thing that you go and see says, turn around and go back. 
<laughs> but you're going to be reborn in the process and then you go back and and i i mean i i, th- I think that's that's a neat thematic element again that kubrick and clark are introducing here is that what Dave's going to put Hal through, he's about to be put through. Because what happens to him, you know, in that hotel room is he basically gets to see his adult life and death flash before his eyes before he's reborn. Because we don't know how long he's there, right? Like that's constructed for him. You know, again, think about the Matrix or whatever. That's built for him so that he can kind of be comfortable with the transition he's about to go through. Yeah, that's. Again, that, that brings us to one of the most mis- just mysterious parts of this movie, which is just the, you know, act four, um, which I'll tell you what I love is where, where we cut to, he's arrived at Jupiter, the spaceship has finally stopped moving. And we get that super wide shot of the spaceship is, like, the spaceship has filled the frame up till now, it's been this giant thing, and now it's this very tiny, like, grain of rice next to Jupiter. And the idea yeah. of something that reminds me of reminds me of a line in Shawshank Redemption where Morgan Freeman says talks just about the ocean, saying something that big would scare me to death. That that line is what I'm feeling when I'm looking at that scene of like that's how like the idea of the epicness of space. That's the whole movie is just how big space is. So that's just that one shot is enough, and I'm just like chills down my spine. And then mm-hmm. we get into this. This is uh, truly where the movie just totally gives up telling like no one's there's not a single line of dialogue for the next 20 minutes or whatever yeah well the the last line is you know it's full of stars or whatever right when he's going through the stargate or whatever it is he's he's seeing there and that's the last line of dialogue right. the rest of this is just sounds and music and again this you have to watch it and it's going to show you what it wants you to know yeah it's a it's a it's a weird chunk of film it's uh just psycho it's just psychedelic imagery for 10 minutes. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've, I've heard people talk about that, like the psychedelic part or whatever. And I, again, I just think this is what Kubrick and Clark are trying to imagine. Like, what would it be like flying through a wormhole? I don't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. and th- they're probably sitting there like, I, I don't know, but the lights flying by? Sure. <laughs> and, and then Stanley creates this. I, and I mean, what a great shot where you just you see it from his point of view and then you also see it just reflecting on his mask. That's the part of the shots that I'm blown away with is the fact that you just see Dave like overwhelmed by what is in front of him. You know, like he can't get it. And I mean, like he's almost undone mentally by what he's in the presence of at that point. Yeah, it's it's a it's a editing style I've only seen in Kubrick movies. The idea of like we're seeing these images and we cut back to like what feels like just like one second of a freeze frame of, of Dave's face. And he does that same thing in, um, if he does it in Clockwork Orange, I don't remember, but I know he does it in The Shining where we see like the visions of the blood coming down the, the elevator and we just cut to Danny's face in the middle of a scream, stuff like that. And in both occasions, in 2001 in The Shining, it is so jarring, it just it scares the hell out of me every time. And I wonder if that's exactly what Cooper was doing. It's like, give the audience mm-hmm. a jump while they're in this psychedelic imagery and you're right it's this is a part part of this thing of uh, it's kubrick trying to predict it's like certain mm-hmm. things like well you know spaceships they'll look like this they'll move this this fast but the idea of total guesswork i wonder if he just that like we didn't mention douglas trumbull's name but i, I i'm not sure if he was in, he probably was involved with th- this you know 10 minutes but it's just it is all this random stuff that yeah again so yeah what is it like to pass to another dimension it's like you know George Lucas he 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 chopped it down to 2 seconds the idea all of a sudden the stars just start moving faster real quick um mm-hmm. and yeah and this it's all this totally random imagery and remember the that, remember that was one thing the first time i saw it i was like this is a little dull 
This is the first time I saw it. I was like, because really nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. It's like we're just watching a screen, the the greatest screensaver in the history of yeah, film. But when, it is. It is the greatest screensaver ever. You're right. <laughs> but when you, when you watch it again, especially on a really nice, uh, the bigger the better, a nice a TV, or maybe if you've got a computer monitor like right in front of your face, or like when I saw this thing on the big screen, all of a sudden this was, I, I finally clicked. It was like, okay, now I get it. it was, this was meant to be seen where... It's a pitch black room, speakers all around you, and all you see is this thing. So it's almost as though you're getting kind of a similar feeling of your your. It's not just you're watching these images; you're feeling that sensation of moving forward or whatever. Oh, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's the that's the thing is that with a static shot, I mean, the guy is literally just laying in a chair, is yeah. what we're seeing. But you feel movement with it. You you feel and you feel like the pressure of it on him. Too like that. Not only is he mentally undone by this, but he may be physically kind of being whipped around and doesn't doesn't understand what is going on here, and and that he's just having to try to take it all in. I, I like the fact that Dave is overwhelmed by this experience. Yeah, we don't exactly get a sense of uh, speed until it's over, and when all of a sudden the when <laughs> when it stops moving, we just cut to Dave, and he is just vibrating in his seat. As, like it looks almost looks like mm. his eyes are crossed, like he is. Like he's in a some kind of comatose uh, uh, state that it actually I think it actually helps inform the movie a second time you realize he's going like at a speed that is you know cannot be calculated so that's why he you know he's uh, he's he is unable to process it yeah he can't he can't put it all together so he has to just you know this is the best as he can, his mind can possibly process it. and then that's what we're supposed to read from it too is that this is you can't possibly process this so this is what this would feel like if you were to go through it live through it etc oh yeah and it's mm-hmm. again it's it's kubrick uh totally guessworking and i think i heard this on a commentary or the special features saying it's a combination of what it's like to go through, a, you know, wormhole, and, and the idea of we're seeing what we are seeing are reflection refractions of light that do not exist in our solar system. Like that, just the thing of like, I don't know, you hold a glass in front of a in front of the sun, and it predicts predicts, you know, like you see like a sort of a certain fraction of like a rainbow image or whatever. That's that's mm-hmm. what we see with with our sun. But the idea of what what Dave is seeing, he's seeing star refractions of stars and lights that no one has ever seen. Where like this like four dimensional stuff, like the shadow of a four dimensional object is a three dimensional object, is what I've been told. Like uh, like all yeah. of a sudden he's just all of a sudden there's like these five cuboid uh, things that are just kind of shifting and changing color in front of him while we're moving forward through space. It's it's uh, like yeah, the first time I saw it, I was like this is bizarre. But like when I saw it again, yeah. it's like oh this is this is cool. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's totally bizarre, but it is also totally cool. Like it just it, again, it's to blow your mind, and that's what I think that's what Kubrick was trying to do. And maybe it doesn't do nowadays because we've, I mean, we've advanced so much in effects, and we can do things, and you know all this yada yada. But in 1968, I bet this blew people's friggin' lids, man. I mean, they had no idea what you know they were having their wigs peeled back over this. And I know this movie has this reputation of like, man, the higher you get, the weirder this scene is. I've never <laughs> tested that. I don't really plan on it or whatever. But I can imagine that yes, this would really be trippy if you were under the influence of substance. I would think. I mean, I, I wonder if that's what Douglas yeah. Trumbull was on when he was making it or <laughs> Kubrick himself. But it's like, oh yeah, I, I can imagine this movie would be enhanced. Like so, certain movies, it's like, you know, I don't know if like. 
drugs would matter. But this is one where it's like, it would be a different experience for sure. I and mean, we've talked about the fact that it, 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 there's some symmetry in the fact that Dave essentially devolves Hal back into his, his you know, when they reboot him, um, it's like he's starting over again or whatever. So he's, he's giving him a reboot. But that, it, I mean, I think that's what the aliens are doing to him, too, is they want him to go back as the rebooted advanced human life form. How do you read what goes down in the hotel room and the, the star baby at the end? Yeah, this is this is this is this is a part of a move the movie where even I have trouble one like I I almost run out of ideas. There's certain a lot of movies where like I'm faced with weird stuff where it's like I can think of something, but honestly with the whole Star Child thing, there's part of me it's just like I have no idea what he's thinking. But 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 you know, it's it, it is interesting to, you know, while you're watching it, it, again, one thing that's cool is like, you know, this 10 minutes of psychedelic imagery and then bam, we're, this, Dave's spaceship is in the middle of some kind of hotel room out of nowhere. And the first time I saw that, they're definitely in a part of the movie where I'm just like, I'm, to- I'm lost. I don't know what's going on. Honestly, the first time I saw it, it's like, well, first thing I'd lose is that. Um, but watching it again, I had to hear Douglas Trumbull say the hotel is meant to be Within the context of the story, that's a hotel Dave has been to in New York City. And the aliens have yeah. read his mind and say he liked this hotel room. So uh, let's uh, make him comfortable in, you know, in, a, in a place he likes. But as to what exactly is happening, like why are they de-aging him? It, uh, other than they're trying to inca- – I always thought that they're, someone, they're kind of trying to incapacitate him. Like for the, they literally make him bedridden so he can't move uh, when the – monolith does whatever it does to him but again this is well it's it, it's a, that, totally up in the air that's the other question how long do you think he's there because i mean you could I, you could read it a lot of ways and i've certainly you know watched it a lot of different ways and said he's there for a few you know moments he's there for years he's just stuck in that you know i'm like i don't know how long he's supposed to be there or what we're i mean again i think you can read it a lot of ways but i want to know what you think how long do you think dave's in that room uh, I think I I don't think he I think if he was in there for let's say seventy years I think that's that that's a little to me that's a little dark and a little like in like that's a little evil it's like why would you that like that sounds cruel like why would you do that to a person mm-hmm. isolation for seventy years so I like to think we we are seeing like you know for Dave he's experiencing maybe like a Groundhog Day thing of you know hundreds of years but for us this is happening in real time they're 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 de aging him in a way Kier Julia he actually he takes credit for coming up with this idea of Dave sees an older version of himself and then we cut to that older version and we don't see the younger version again. It's like you need like it's it's difficult to exp- to, to to explain but when you watch the movie it's like yeah once like we see Dave in the, in the spacesuit he sees himself in a robe all of a sudden we're with the guy in the robe space you know spacesuit guy is gone and he looks the glass breaks and he sees himself in a bed and uh then he doesn't see himself in the robe anymore. So I like to think it is happening and, you know, it is a few moments. I agree with that. And I'll tell you why, because it goes back to my benevolent creators theory. They're not there to punish him for anything. Mm. You know, they're there to, to advance him to the next level. And so if, 
you know, think about it. If it takes in real time, it takes 15 minutes for them to pass, you know, all those years of his life and turning back around. Okay. That's how long it takes. The thing about this movie that's amazing is that it's not there to answer any of this. And to my knowledge, neither does 2010. I don't think there is an answer. I think it is one of one of the many things that they left up to, Hey, you, you can try to figure it out. Your theory is just as good as the rest. It's like uh, comparative literature or something. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, if that's what you get out of it, fine. Uh, and I mean, that's the, the eternal, uh, fun of a movie like this is that you can read it a lot of different ways, but I tend to think again, just based off of where we've been in this story and and what's been happening is that this is not a punishment for Dave. This is to send him back as the answer to whatever the beaming question was. And that's you know kind of my last question for you is, is, is my theory correct that this monolith beaming them out to Jupiter and then sending them back just part of the guideposts for these alien life forms, or are they trying to teach something here? Well, again, there, you know, there's theories. I like to think that he sent the star child as it, when it gets back to earth, it's going to provide some kind of, it's going to help out mankind somehow. Like that's going to be the like the monolith can't speak to us, this star child will be able to speak to us or something. But right. when you're talking about this movie, you know, it's fun to, you know, dissect and because it doesn't give us answers. That brings me into something I need to talk about, which is a movie called Interstellar. Which okay. is one of my very favorite filmmakers who takes after Kubrick a lot, Christopher Nolan. He's one of my absolute favorites. He made Interstellar, which was very much his attempt to replicate 2001. And in some areas, he even surpassed it with some of the visual effects. And some of the characterizations were like obviously much more deep than 2001. But where he dropped the ball, in my opinion, was this mystery side of 2001, which is 2001 gives us no answers. And in Interstellar, Nolan, he gives us answers. He gives us answers for everything. But in my opinion, they were particularly dull, boring, or sometimes just dumb answers that I just didn't buy. And the main thing is, is that if Nolan, he should have gone the way of Kubrick, Leave it up to the audience. Because Kubrick was asked again and again about this movie, about what is it supposed to mean? What the hell is a star child? And one of his responses, I brought this up in the Blade Runner pod, which is his response was to say, well, imagine if Leonardo da Vinci said about the Mona Lisa, she's smiling because she's keeping a secret from her lover. Well, now you know. So you can't use your imagination to come Mm -hmm. up with something that might be better. Because 2001 might seem confusing or like Kubrick is trying to mess with an audience. But I think he's trying to open the mind of the viewer and say, well, what do you think happened? That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And, you know, the there's two things about Interstellar, just to get off on that for a second, that I find so disappointing. One of which is Murph! That 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 whole thing needed to go away. But the other is the fact that he does answer the questions for you. And it's it's really disappointing because <laughs> all he does is go meet Murph and then go off to bang Anne Hathaway on a distant moon. I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, that might be somebody's fantasy, but you know, I don't really, I don't really, there was no like ultimate goal to anything. That, and, and the other part of interstellar that bugs me is that you need a friggin' slide rule to understand half of it, yeah. you know, and, and a physics degree. I needed Neil deGrasse Tyson to try to help me through that movie. And I hate that guy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, th- that, uh, that to me, and a lot of people ding Nolan for like, you know, insomnia and prestige. No, that's his worst film by far. It's way worse than dark Knight rises, mm-hmm. like interstellar. And it's still good, but it's still bad. Like it's, there's so much about that. That doesn't work. The thing about this movie that works, 
works for me. And I realize it won't work for everybody. I'm not going to sit here and say that if you don't love this movie, you're a moron. No, this isn't for everybody. I'll get it. But the thing about it that I like is that it begs you to ask those questions, to be creative. And that's what Kubrick really got off on was he wanted you to watch his stuff and then like have a discussion about it, have a thought about it, even if it made you uncomfortable. He wanted you to watch Lolita and say, do you get it? Mm-hmm. You know, who's wrong here? What really happens? Yeah. Who are you supposed to be for? He wanted you to watch Strange Love and and get like the the farcical nature of mutually assured destruction. You know, and how like, think about how ridiculous this is, guys, and who we are putting in charge to take care of this and even go back like the killing. They go through all of that. And what happens? The money blows away on the tarmac and the cops show up. And what does the guy say? What difference does it even make? (laughs) You know, and and that's what Kubrick is into, is that he wants you to, to paint your own conclusion, come up with your own, you know, adventure and go with it. And what he's provided is the tapestry for you to do that with. So I love the fact that this movie doesn't have any answers, that it did a sequel 20-something years later that provided no answers to any of it. You know, I, again, I don't remember much about 2010, except Roy Scheider, some Russians, <laughs> and it, that there are no answers, you know, and that it just sort of advanced the same idea. I like that about this movie is that it, you know, it is open to your interpretation, and I think that's what makes it fun to watch and discuss. Absolutely. It's it's like maybe Kubrick, this was his intention, but he knew maybe maybe he didn't he couldn't come up with an idea. Maybe I do think some of this stuff, it's like he came up with it thinking, I don't know what this means, but it looks cool. But the main the end result is going to be it's gonna be cooler to have five thousand possibilities as opposed to let me try and come up with something to 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 resolve this story. I think that story about Mona Lisa that she told that he tells is exactly right. It's like, well, if you know and now you know it, it, where's the fun in it. And you know, some movies work as mysteries where like like the movie like The Usual Suspects, we reviewed that a while back. Once you know the twist in that, there is fun in going back and seeing how the movie fools you and can you figure it out. Exactly. You know, some movies though, once you know the twist, it's like, and I don't need to see that again. Yeah. You know, I, and I'll tell you, Interstellar is that way for me. Once I know it, I'm like I don't really need to ever experience that again. Yeah. You know, like that was one time when that was enough, you know, and that was it. And I got it and I'm, I'm done. This movie lives on the fact that the multiple viewings of it can take you different places. Um, but kind of like the scarecrow said, they may not be places you want to go, mm-hmm. but it'll <laughs> take you places. So I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings, Kurt. I don't think it's going to be a surprise what we rate this, sure. but for formality's sake, what are yours for 2001 A Space Odyssey? Well, uh, very quickly, just let me say about 2010 that I've, again, I've only seen it the one time, but I actually think it was like, like I was expecting, eh, this is going to suck. But the surprise there was like, it's not a bad movie. It's not, it doesn't come close to 2001, but the, there's a certain ballsiness of like, this guy tried to make a sequel to 2001 and it's not bad. So that's, a, that's another, another discussion. But for 2001, a few months ago, my local theater was showing old movies on the big screen and one of them was 2001 and I had to go. There were only two other people in there. I sat right in the front row where my field of vision just filled uh, filled by the screen. And I've seen the movie on some nice TVs, but it does not compare to seeing this movie in a theater with perfect, you know, blackout lighting conditions with that theater sound. So you were just immersed in the movie. And I don't think of this as a proper film. I mean, it is a proper film, but I do think 2001 is more of like an, an experience. 
like a very different movie here, but it reminds me of why Avatar was a hit. I don't think it's a particularly good movie, but I can see why it's a hit. I don't think anyone who contributed to that movie's multi-billion dollar box office could tell you who the characters were, but that's not why they saw the movie. They saw it for this unique visual experience watching it in 3D. Like I saw Avatar once, I thought it sucked. I saw it in IMAX 3D, and it's like, okay, now I see. This is why it made $2.7 billion or whatever. And from the jump, I always liked 2001, but after seeing it on the big screen, it really did click. Like all of a sudden, it, it hit me. It's like, okay, now I really see why this movie is such a big deal since it came out in theaters. I mean, when the Blue Danube started, I just tot- I totally forgot about whatever else was going on in my day that particular Saturday. I just got lost in the movie. And you'd think all these decades later might hurt the effects, but on the big screen, they look better than ever, especially on the print cleanup and stuff they're doing these days. And you don't watch this movie for a tight plot or deep characters. You watch it to feel what it might be like to be in outer space. It's like Roger Ebert said, the astronauts were asked, what's it like in outer space? And many of them just said, it's like 2001. And that's probably the best compliment a movie, a science fiction movie has ever gotten. It's like the best cinematic ride anyone's ever made. Uh, this movie won Kubrick his first and only Academy Award. He was credited as, credited as being part of the visual effects team, and he got an Oscar for visual effects. I have a feeling the other guys who were nominated, they just stayed home that day. Uh, the movie is mysterious, but not confusing. Uh, I can't think of another movie that leaves me with as much to think about when it's over. And HAL 9000, despite he's literally just a red eye and a voice, and it's one of the greatest villains in all of cinema. 2001 A Space Odyssey, I can't call it a fun movie, but the experience of watching it is a blast in its own way. Now, there might be Kubrick movies I enjoy more, like Dr. Strangelove or The Shining, but I'd have to say that pound for pound, this is probably the best work Stanley Kubrick ever did uh, as a filmmaker. The way of, like, when The Godfather came out, after that, acting in movies changed forever. And after 2001, science fiction movies changed, visual effects, cinematography, all that changed forever. Uh, So it's one of the greatest films ever made. So, of course, it gets an extra large popcorn for me. I'm going to give this an extra large popcorn as well. And I'm going to tell you now, this is always in my ever-evolving top 10 of my favorite films of all time. I think this is genius on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. I think it's thought-provoking. I also think it's ultimately uh, a movie that loves to frustrate you. (laughs) And the fact that it frustrates you and that it frustrates me is part of the reason I keep going back to it. Because I I want to probe my mind for answers. And now I'm really jealous, Kurt, because I've never seen this in a theater. And I so want to. So I'm like searching the internet. I have a Google search for like theatrical <laughs> releases within 150 miles of where I am of 2001. So hopefully someday I can kick that off the bucket list. It's worth it. Yeah, I, you know, I've seen the Romeo and Juliet movie that was nominated for Best Picture this year. <laughs> I've seen part of Funny Girl. I don't want to see Oliver, but I know the story Oliver Twist. But the fact that this movie wasn't even nominated is another reason I hate the Academy. <laughs> you know, it's the day. And but again, I think they there's you know to defend them for a second, they didn't get it. 
And I don't think people got this. And I think that's what Kubrick wanted is I don't want you to get this. I don't want you to get this in 1968. I don't want you to get it in 1978. I want you to have to think about it for, you know, 40 years till you get this. And this movie, I mean, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of this movie. And think about everything we've talked about for the last hour and a half. And Again, how much more there is to talk about and think about with this movie? We could have done a five-hour podcast sure. on this, you know, and and uh, I I think that's what gives this movie its life. Now, again, I said a little bit ago, and I'll say it again: this isn't for everybody. All right, and I get that. If you don't dig this, cool. It's not it's not for you, and it doesn't make you any less of a film critic or uh, appreciator of of good work or anything like that than anyone else. You you don't like it, you don't like it. I liken this to the way people feel about Pink Floyd. You know, there's really three reactions to that, right? You either absolutely hate them, you know, and you say this is a complete waste and tedious point of time. And that's what people say about this movie. There's people who appreciate it, but don't say it's, that's not really for me. You know, I don't really go for it. And then there's the people that absolutely love it and dissect it and try to put it on things that it was never intended to be. You try to sync it up with the friggin' Wizard of Oz or whatever <laughs> else you need. You know, I mean, I think that's, you know, and I'm in, I'm, I want to say now I'm a Floyd hit. I love the Floyd. All right. I realize they're not for everybody. And this movie's the same way. You know, I, I feel about them the same way. I'm like, this isn't for everybody. But there is some great stuff here. And for me, this is extra large popcorn all the way. It's one of the favorite things we've ever reviewed. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. And the fact that we get to talk about it in the midst of this this Kubert retrospective. Because I have always said Kubrick's best film is this one. But my favorite one is The Shining. You know, and I'm going to be curious to see when we come back around, because I haven't watched The Shining since Nick and I reviewed it all those years ago, uh, knowing that someday we were going to get to it again. And I, I can't wait to see it again to see if I still feel the same way, because I don't know that he ever got as much right or as much interesting as he does here. Um, and uh, again, this movie is extra large popcorn. I think it's fantastic. And I'm glad we got to talk about it next time. I'm going to make a really interesting confession to you. We're talking about Clockwork Orange. That's the next one. Mm-hmm. All right. In the Kubrick retrospective, I've never seen it all the way through. Oh, geez. I've seen pieces of it. <laughs> I know what it's about. And and for years, I thought this was like some grand horror movie, you know, or whatever, because of the way it's presented and stuff. Uh-huh. But I've never seen it all the way through. So I'm really interested to experience that, kn- knowing basically what it's about, but having never watched all of it all the way through. I assume you you've seen it a few times. Though. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's uh, that's I'll say what I said at the time. It's like it's not what I thought it was. It's something else, but it's not what you think. Yeah, it's. yeah. I, I'm really interested to get into that one uh, later on down the line because uh, as we continue the Kubert retrospective, because I mean we're past the hump day on him at this point. <laughs> you know, like this is uh, I mean we're we're kind of uh, turning the corner with Kubert because it's Clockwork Orange and then Barry Lyndon and The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. You know, because we're not doing AI, because we kind of put that in the same pile as all those four shorts that he did early on. It's, <laughs> he had to have directed it, and so we're ending with Eyes Wide Shut, and maybe we'll get to that by the end of the year. Uh, but uh, you know, that's you know, there's only five more left in the uh, the Cubic retrospective, and uh, the next two I've never seen. I've never seen Barry Lyndon either, but I and for reasons that I'll explain on that podcast. But I've never seen Clockwork Orange, so I'm really interested to, to go back to that one and see it. But you know, uh, lots of cool stuff coming up here in the springtime on film strip. Kurt, I know you're going to be coming back with Fabish Factor because one, there's lots of Marvel movies, but there's other stuff you're interested in too, and it's coming out. And I think a movie coming out that you kind of tabbed as uh, one that you're interested in is Annihilation. 
Annihilation. What's that all about? Yeah, Annihilation. I'm interested in that because it's made by uh, totally spaced out on what his name is, but it's the guy who made uh, Ex Machina. He directed and wrote Ex Machina. He's also the writer of. Uh, he wrote Dread. He wrote Sunshine. Alex Garland. That's his name. And he wrote uh, Twenty Eight Days Later. I think he's a genius. I think he's. I, I think he's a master of science fiction. Uh, in the way of like the guy who's making um, uh, Black Mirror's name's Charlie Brooker, the way he is just a master. The guy's got an imagination like no one else. He knows this guy really knows what he's doing with with genre material. And uh, Annihilation looks like it's him making uh, something a little, more like an a, an adventure movie, whereas uh, Ex Machina was just like a you know three per th- four character sci fi drama. This one looks like it's going to be a little bit more of an epic, and I hope it's good. Like that. Like if it's as good as Ex Ma- if it's anywhere close to being as good as Ex Machina was, it's going to be a hell of a movie. And yeah, I'm looking forward yeah, to that. Talk about a movie I, I, that I thought was something else and then got a different thing, Ex Machina. Yeah. And that was a good thing, but like I thought it was one thing, and then I watched it. I was like, holy cow, that was, that was like a really twisted, you know, Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like those because, again, like Black Mirror, like that that kind of I like that stuff that sort of messes with your expectations. That can be a lot of fun. And I'll put my plug in now for the, the latest season of Black Mirror that's out uh, right now. Fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting things that are out there. So, but we'll definitely have you back on, Kurt. I mean, you know, I'm all always trying to drag you into some piece of cinematic trash to <laughs> get, get to, to, to lighten your load on, uh, on what you watch. So you never know what may come up. Sure. February, though, folks, man, I, Ron's been pushing for this forever. We're going to celebrate black exploitation movies. Mm. A little bit by, by by doing two like classic ones, one that's kind of a riff on them, and then we're doing a movie that is you know African American led cast. It's not black exploitation, but we're gonna do Shaft from 1971. We're gonna do Dolomite from 1975. We're gonna do 2009's Black Dynamite, and then we're gonna do Black Panther nice. uh, for from Marvel in because I like I would have seen Black Panther anyway because it just looked cool yeah. and because I like Chadwick Boseman. But uh, tying it into February, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. That's what's coming up. And then, uh, you know, who knows what's around the corner for spring with us, folks. We're trying to keep things a little close to the vest, but lots of cool things in the works here. Of course, you can always find episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Just search for Continuous Play Podcast dash Filmstrip, and you'll find all of our shows. If you go to ContinuousPlayPodcast.com slash movies, you'll find all the episodes there as well. If you like the show, please leave us a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you hear the show. It helps other people find the show. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.